we have a packed show for you this week. Uh, to start off, we talked about Volkswagen connecting with Interkite, and Rosemary has done a bunch of research on these kite projects that generate power and uh, what it means, and is it a good idea? And then we look into small wind power uh, with Rise Energy, which has been supported by RWE. Uh, we're going to talk to about our friends uh, in PES Wind Magazine this month or this quarter, I should say, uh, over from North Dakota Thread and what their software solution and, and drone uh, enterprise looks like. And then we're going to head offshore. Um, Scotland is installing the world's deepest fixed bottom offshore wind turbine um, at I think it was 68 meters. And there's also a 100 meter monopile um, from Entrion that they're proposing. Um, and we delve into a little bit about floating offshore as well and uh, about how how that's going to compete with fixed bottom in the long term. And then our wind farm of the week is Western Spirit Wind in New Mexico. So stay tuned for it. I'm Alan Hall, president of WeatherGuard Lightning Tech, and I'm here with my good friend from Wind Power Lab, Joel Saxon, and Australian renewables guru, Rosemary Barnes. And this is the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Rosemary, I know you have talked about the flying kite power generation systems and Volkswagen must have seen your videos. So Volkswagen Group Charging and Interkite have submitted a proposal uh, to the federally funded TechnoHive project, uh, which involves using airborne wind turbines to generate electricity for mobile charging points. And Interkite will provide flying wind turbines, which the company claims could yield twice the annual energy compared to ground lodge turbines. The, the system uses wind-catching kites to pull a rope, producing large forces that are converted into electricity. And uh, the project is called Autoric Mobile Charging Infrastructure, and it will run through the end of 2024. Uh, Interkite is led by former world champion in speed kiting, Christian Gebhard, and they're working on the first uh, product stage for the EK200, which is the model of this kite. And Rosemary, you had done a bunch of research on this on your site. Does this make sense to use Kite to power up mobile car charge ports? Maybe, maybe it does. I was interested to see Anna Kite with this agreement because then they're not the front runners. I mean, they're one of the one of the front runners, I guess. But um, I hadn't seen any commercial sales from anybody other than sky sales and um airborne wind yet so it's good to see that diversifying a bit but um it's not and as far as i know and according to their website they don't have a product ready to go off the shelf yet they're still testing prototypes and and stuff so um i guess that's why it's a research project with with volkswagen um so in the long term, I think it may make sense, but there are a few um, a few issues that need to be taken care of first that I find it hard to believe that they're going to be ready by the end of 2024, ready to actually start rolling these out. Um, the biggest one is just regulatory. At the moment, um, all of the you know flight of these systems, at least in Europe, all the 
all the test flights are in special test areas, you know. Um, they haven't yet figured out how it's going to work when they're flying above, you know, roads or, um, you know, anywhere anywhere near where people might go, which presumably they would have to if they're going to be powering, um, you know, charge points unless you want to also build really lengthy transmission lines to get the power the power there, um, then you're going to be putting them in built-up areas and, you know, you're going to be worried about what happens if there's a, a crash and a kite falls down onto the road or something like that. So I would say regulation is going to be the, the biggest and longest hurdle because, I mean, it's not just that Enerkite has to demonstrate that their system is safe. There needs to be a whole regulatory system developed um, that they can fit into because obviously the EU doesn't just allow anybody to, you know, fly whatever they want, wherever they want, right? I mean, you'd, you'd know about that. Um, and then there's a few technical problems like um, that no one has solved yet, including Anakite, which is autonomous launch and landing um, and also, you know, how it goes in difficult weather conditions. So... Like I said, SkySails is the furthest advanced in this technology um, and they have their autonomous launch and landing roughly ready or it's ready under good conditions, but they still have, I think, 2.5 operators uh, on hand at all times. So, um, yeah, it's like two two people and an assistant or maybe it's 1.5. I can't remember. Anyway, more than one person um that's that needs to be there to actually fly this stuff they've got to be you know a pilot and a co-pilot kind of um and obviously that um massively affects the commercial viability of it but you know it's a temporary thing while they iron out the kinks um yes but i think with sky sales is a bit it's a bit of a different commercial strategy because their initial sales are mostly like islands, they're actual islands, so they're island grids and also, you know, physical islands. Um, so they're replacing diesel generators and diesel in remote locations is so expensive and so they have like a really strong incentive to try something else that works. Um yeah, and with a airborne wind energy system, you can install it much quicker than you can uh, a, you know, a fixed <laughs> a fixed wind turbine, um, and it's a lot less permanent. So, you know, if you're putting it in a sensitive environmental um, area, then you don't need to, you know, dig and build a foundation. It just all comes in in a shipping container, and you just, you know, um, yeah, un unpack it from there in a in a day or two. Um, so, yeah, so to me the island application makes much more sense for that um, uh, early adopters um, kind of, yeah, part, part of their their growth plan um, because, you know, there's a lot of good reasons why these applications can't just use regular wind energy, so it doesn't really matter that it's more expensive and more of a pain for now. Um, so they'll be able to work out those issues in uh, on those customers Whereas for car charging, I mean, obviously this is going to be in areas where there's a lot of people and there's going to be an electricity grid nearby. Um, there's plenty of regular wind farms that are connected to the grid. So, um, yeah, I guess that it would make sense if they couldn't install a regular wind turbine for some reason. But if they could, then that would for sure be the cheapest option now. Um, but I do agree that there's at least a possibility of this ending up the cheaper option in 15 ish years maybe so you know if they're thinking long term then it, you know it's good to have a a bet on 
yeah, about each way. So about on this side is makes sense to me. Joel, have you ever been to Burning Man? Should I answer this question? Well, it may incriminate you. All right. I've been to the Burning Man grounds. I've never been to actual Burning Man festival. All right. So you know that it used to be there was really, it was just you take a tent, you stay out in the desert and have a quote unquote fun weekend. And it's gotten a lot more upscale recently where they have sort of air conditioned tents and all this and catering and all this stuff. The problem is there's no power out there, right? So isn't this interkite solution a perfect situation where you're out in the desert for a week and you put a bunch of these kites to power your Tesla and your tent and your catering service? I think so. And so I, I see it in a couple of different realms as well. So I think emergency and disaster response. So in the US thinking FEMA, Red Cross, if you can roll in with a semi, you might not even have to take the shipping container off of a semi-trailer, pull in with the semi-trailer, launch, and now you've got kilowatts of power for everybody around and you're not running diesel fuel, you're not creating all those fumes, those things. If you've ever been to like so Burning Man, the same thing, they had these issues at the festival a long time ago. Well, not a long time ago, they have it ongoing. Um, but they, they, they first brought it up a long time ago was there's so many nasty fumes in that area of just it's just generators running all day long every day right so you're smelling that you're like oh we're gonna go out to the desert and be one and then it's just diesel fumes and gas fumes all time so you have that that issue so the same thing like if you're and i know this is a stretch right but like i'm thinking tailgating rving all these different kind of things camping that off-grid type stuff but looking at some campers lately uh, my better half and i have and it's amazing to see how many of them don't have an option for any kind of solar panels or anything of this sort. It's all aftermarket stuff. I would think that almost every manufacturer, I mean, you've got some of these, we're looking at tra trailers to pull behind the truck, right? So some of these are 20, 30, 40 feet long, all this roof space, no solar panel. Like put a, it, that should be one big solar array up there in my mind. Um, and with a battery bank, that's but that's bizarre. Is there some sort of um, like ideological opposition between RVs and solar panels? Because definitely those types of vehicles in Australia are covered in solar panels because that's the, by far the easiest way to get electricity, and it's it's quiet, and you don't have to refuel it, and it doesn't smell. Yeah, in the in the US, when you walk into the RV dealership, the first you you run into banks of generators before you run into a little thing of solar panels and the solar panels a lot of times are like the size of a notebook and it's like this is a battery tender to keep your your one battery for raising your platforms up and down it's like why aren't we running the whole camper that way yeah. that's insane to me that it must be like willful it must be on purpose because even you know like um actual just car campers where you get a literal tent out of your backyard um out of your backyard out of your um your car and you camp in that Plenty of people like that will then, you know, unroll a, uh, you know, a bunch of solar panels and use that to, you know, power a, um, a, a little cooler or, um, you know, recharge their phone, something like that. It's just, it's very, it's very convenient <laughs> and cheap. And do you guys have goal zero? I don't know. So goal zero is off-grid living basically is solar panels and they have battery banks and chargers and all this kind of stuff and that like every once in a while you'll see some of those things for sale at one of these rv dealerships but in my mind i would think why not have a pop-up mini wind turbine and have the but it's only specialty brands and i think it's just a cultural thing a lot a lot of the people buying rvs of that sort in the u.s are the older generation that's now retired and they're going to go travel around and that's not really what they're looking for but you'd think it would be a perfect convenience like, oh, hey, by the way, now if it's bright out, you don't have to charge your batteries by running a generator. But it's 
it's odd. I, I agree. Um, but those are the things I'm thinking of. A miniature version of like this Enerkite thing. If you're anywhere where there's any wind and you had this on the in a box on the top of your camper, up you go and, and now you've got power. There is there is one um, available. I'm just, just Googling it now so I can remember the name and check if it's actually available for order. And I would love to get my hands on one of these and, uh, and test it out for the channel. But um, it's by Kite X and it's called um, The Wind Catcher. And it's, uh, yeah, the website's being slow to load, but it's, yeah, it's a small portable system. You unfold a, a campsite and uh, I, I'm i going to assume that it's not autonomous, but um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, there is, there is a portable one. But if you had, if you had, I, I envision a, a camper that has an app, everything has an app, right? You should be able to pull your phone up and be like, just like the Tesla has and be like, oh, hey, your camper is your batteries at 40%. Oh man, we should launch the wind turbine to charge them up, up, charge them down. It goes now, now the kids can watch Netflix in peace. I don't know. Rosemary, since you went to UC Davis, did you go to Burning Man? That's pretty close. No, I didn't, but I would, I would love to. And I think Joel's definitely, or both of you are right that this would be um, a great addition to uh, solar panels is the obvious thing. If it's in the desert, then, you know, you're going to have clear skies (laughs) during the day, most likely. Um, So some solar panels and batteries would be your first step, but um, that, that is, would be a great place to add in these uh, airborne wind energy once they have ironed out the, the kinks and got the regulation sorted. Definitely. Lightning is an act of God, but lightning damage is not. Actually, it's very predictable and very preventable. Strike Tape is a lightning protection system upgrade for wind turbines made by WeatherGuard. It dramatically improves the effectiveness of the factory LPS so you can stop worrying about lightning damage. Visit weatherguardwind.com to learn more, read a case study, and schedule a call today. RWE has been busy again. In a $15 million funding round, RWE Energy Transition Investments has led the growth funding round of Rise Energy, a UK and Spanish manufacturer of small wind turbines. Rise Energy, which has already installed more than 4,000 small wind turbines, plans to expand its energy as a service model, enter new markets, and expand its technology offerings with those funds. Uh, The new markets Rise Energy is targeting include the USA, UAE, and possibly India. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, the company plans to invest in its, in its new technologies, become certified for uh, a number of markets, and expand its manufacturing capability. And RWE uh, thinks that Rise Energy has the potential to be a major force for good in reducing greenhouse gas emissions and providing some reliable and sustainable sustainable energy access. Uh, RWE, again, it seems like week after week, RWE is doing something interesting in the renewable energy space and investing in small wind. I think this makes a lot of sense because uh, there are, like we just talked about, there, there are a number of potential uses for it that it hasn't grown to the, to the place where it probably should be in, in America right now, Joel. Do you think? It seems like there's not a lot of small wind here right now. No, absolutely not. And I think Rosemary is, uh, has done a couple of videos on small wind turbines as well and where they're good and where they're not. Of course, talking about, you know, ranch lands, farmlands versus inner cities and those kind of things and where it actually fits. But again, the U.S., uh, the general population, depending on where you are in the country, has not taken a hold of this distributed grid, small, make your own power type stuff. Like you, 
you know, we drove into this, uh, we're in a, in Houston now, we're in the suburbs here and driving into this new subdivision, uh, where my better half and I are staying here for the next few months, we saw solar panels on the roofs and I was like, oh man, this is awesome. Finally, someone diving into solar panels and roofs because in Texas, in the suburbs, you just don't see that because oh, they don't look that good on the roof or whatever, but you might have, you know, 300 homes in a square mile and not a solar panel on them. And you're thinking, and it's Houston. They, sh they should be on all these houses. So I was happy to see them here. Um, the same thing. I, I, to be honest with you, I've traveled all over this country from left to right, and I can count in one hand the amount of small wind turbines I've seen. And all of them have been on ranches, and most of them have been in Wyoming, to be honest with you. So that's interesting. That's kind of similar to Australia for wind, but for solar, I mean, everyone's got it regardless of your, you know, how much you care about the environment or what your political leanings are. It's just, you know, it just makes so much sense. And it's very easy and cheap in Australia compared to um, the US. So it makes more sense here than it does even in Texas where you've got lots of sun. Um, but I, I also keep an eye out for small wind when I'm traveling around and I do see it every now and then. But what I'm looking for is, um, is that turbine turning and I don't know. I haven't been keeping statistics, but definitely less than half the, half the time um, they're turning, and sometimes they're spinning so fast. I'm pretty sure that it's not connected to anything. It's just you know, it's a it's a pinwheel, um, de decorative, um, which is you know, which is f fine. Especially vertical axis wind turbines do just look super cool as a garden ornament. So um, you know, it's ex expensive if you <laughs> buy a, buy a turbine and, and just use it for a garden ornament, but. That's up to the the owner, I guess. But um, I think this this plan with by RWE and with with Rise, it's a little bit different to that. Though I don't think that what they're expecting is that people are going to be buying these units and sticking them on a house in the suburbs. Um, like you said, I've done some videos on that, and I mean the the wind resource is just not right to do it in an urban area. Um, wind speeds are, are too low um, because there's buildings and trees and everything blocking blocking the wind. It's very turbulent, so that makes it um, hard on the wind turbines. Plus they do make some noise and some vibrations. So you're going to struggle there. Um, if you want to get a decent amount of wind, you really want to put it at least 10 meters up on a tower and, um, you know, like local planning doesn't necessarily allow you to have a 10 meter tower in your backyard. Um, I wouldn't be that thrilled if my next door neighbor <laughs> put a, a 10 meter high uh, small wind turbine. Um, but the kinds of markets that they're talking about, it's similar to what I was saying. Sky sales are doing trying to displace diesel generators because it's just so expensive um, to run a diesel generator. So you, you know, you have uh, I don't know. It's an easier entry for any kind of startup wind energy if you can displace diesel. Then people have a lot of a lot of money that they're willing to spend on that. Um, so it's distributed sort of in the sense that it's, you know, it's going into rural communities and probably places that either are not connected to the main grid or they're not well connected. Or um, in the case of Australia, there's a lot of talk about resilience because bushfires um, come through and sometimes cut cut places off for, you know, for weeks or months, you might be cut off from the main electricity grid. So there's a lot of work in place to try and get um, more resilience at the, you know, at the end of the, the transmission line. Um, so those are the kinds of places where, 
where this would make sense. And I am really pleased to see more emphasis on on small wind and especially on certification of it because it's really lacking that there's certification of these kinds of systems. And so even when you get people that have a, a good location for a small wind turbine, and I think that the this project it's talking about, I think said like three to 60 kilowatts. So it is uh, a home or a small farm sized amount of power or a small community, I guess at 60 kilowatts, you had a few of those and that's can do quite a few homes. Um, So even where people, you know, might live on a, a ranch that is expensive to, you know, connect all the way to the grid, they're buying the small wind turbines that are available to buy now uh, are mostly not certified and you you just get so many people you look search it online you'll see so many people that have just bought something that did not do what it said it would they often break quite quickly and then you know like they're they're rated at some ridiculous wind speed or um you know their sales the sales information is either incorrect or just so, uh, I don't know, misleading that people are generally not buying small wind turbines and just being really, really happy with it. So I think that it's definitely needed to get the um, certification right. Um, There is a small wind certification. There's only like five or 10 different turbines on there, um, but they will test it under, you know, specific conditions and then they will say you know how much not just its peak power but um how much did it make over you know a um, a period of of testing hours so that will be good i got a question for you alan and maybe because this is a u.s economics thing so i'm doing a little armchair thinking while rosemary is giving us the the good technical detail um what if a bank or some other institution, a co-op or something in like Western Kansas or Texas, Oklahoma, came, came up with a tool that was a capital tool uh, to be able to support more of these being installed? So what I'm thinking is, is the reason that a lot of these aren't installed, it's a capital expenditure that people just don't have the money for. I don't know exactly what a 50 kilowatt or a 60 kilowatt or 40 whatever costs, but if you had a, a bank or some kind of financial institution that would come and say, hey guys, we would like to help expand this as an ESG stamp or whatever you want to say, let's install these on, on homes and we'll share the upside with you. So if you're, if you're getting paid back from the grid once you're connected and once you use up all the power you need, and then you get, because that's kind of how the program works in the U.S. at least, um, if, you, if there was a bank that would create a loan program or a function of that sort where they would share in the upside of it, I think you could see some more of these getting installed. Because right now, it's, it's the, one of the barriers to entry is capital. Right. It costs money to get these things installed. So maybe if someone stepped up to the plate and said, you know what, we'd like to help with this distributed grid um, idea. And to to help the general public, uh, maybe they could build a function within a, a a financial or economic function within a bank or some other financial institution to help out. Yeah, I think there's some obvious places where that can happen: Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Iowa, Nebraska, even up in South Dakota. Those things are possible, and because there are a number of community banks in those areas that are really tied to the surrounding area, they know their banker. That 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 plays into helping out the community. And I think you're right. It, it's a question of like Rosemary is saying, some of these wind terms are big enough. They can support four five, six homes on them or one large dairy farm. So you're all the way up in Wisconsin. It may be the same thing. And, and until there's financing for them, it's really hard for 
a single homeowner to to take the plunge. And Rosemary's also right. In the Midwest, I think a lot of people have gotten have tried it and gotten burned over the years. So think back back in the 1980s until now, there's been a lot of companies kind of come and go. That certification is really important. If they're going to buy something of that expense, they need to make sure that it works and does what it says it's going to do. <laughs> Again, the banker makes a big difference there. You know, in terms of financing, I um I recommended a book to you last week after the podcast we were chatting, and I recommend that you read. I can't remember what it's called in Australia. Uh, I think it's called The Big Switch. It's by Sol Griffith, who started uh, Electrify America and also Australia. Um, he's big on um on financing for uh you know electrification opportunities for homes for for homeowners. There are a few options in Australia for solar panels. Um and I don't know if all of the things that he talks about in his book are available yet, but it's talking about things like, you know, if you um install a, a heat pump instead of a, a gas boiler in Australia at least that is um oh yeah that's cheaper than so you'll save money on your your bills and the same is true for a lot of different electrification things same with you know um electric vehicles uh that your running costs are going to be cheaper than if you have a petrol car because of maintenance and fueling costs um so there are banks that will give you a loan based on the idea that you're going to have more disposable income to um you know so the saving that you make is the payment that that you make um so that's available for solar panels at least through i think it's macquarie um in australia and yeah it's definitely a big opportunity and something that that needs to happen to really accelerate electrification because you know over the total total lifetime um all of these new electrification technologies save money but um it doesn't help you if you know your boiler is broken today um and you only have you know a small amount you want to spend the least amount of money today to replace it then you're going to replace it with another gas boiler but um if you could have some finance that you know covered the gap and then you repaid it based on your bill savings um throughout the life of the the product then that would be a much lower hurdle to to overcome so i think yeah you've raised a really really critical point that um financing is something that needs to mature for this to you know take off rapidly yeah and as we always say like the, the borderline or the, the the stop on financing is insuring right so the stamps from whoever's going to certify these things go a long ways to insurers accepting it because nobody's going to finance unless you can insure it they're going to have everybody wants their protection right so if they don't if we can if we can work towards getting all of these things certified or not all of them but the good ones certified and they have a stamp on them then uh, they can be insured then we can finance them and uh, we can move this thing forward faster so the new PES wind magazine came in the mail if you haven't gotten your copy, check out PESWin.com and you can just download it. And I was thumbing through there. There's a lot of good articles. Uh, it comes out quarterly. So when you get it, there's a lot to read. It's there's good material throughout the whole magazine. Uh, there's an article on Thread. And Thread is based in the United States. It's a drone company, but it's got a little bit unique spin. And I'm trying to understand all the things that they do. And I'm, I'm really just starting to learn about Thread. Joel, I know you know a lot more than I do on it, but can you explain sort of what the model is for Thread? Because it's a little bit different than other drone companies. I would dial back one step there. And I don't think I would classify Thread as a drone company. I think I'd classify them as a software company. I'd classify them as a software company, right? Because they're building, they, while, they, while they have created some drone technology to, to inspect wind turbines, um, they're also using drones to collect data on utility assets and, and other things of that sort. And But at the 
basis of it is the software platform for for diagnosing what the state is telling you, right? And being able to properly manage it. So one of the things that they're doing in wind, I know, because I've talked with uh, Pete over there and um, uh, Gray Byers, their, their uh, chief business officer a little bit, is uh, they're enabling, and, and it's really smart, they're enabling the asset owners or ISPs or even OEMs to be able to inspect on their own for, for, for wind turbines. So in wind power lab, we're always preaching to some of our clients, like let's, let's motivate proper inspections. You know, when, when drone inspections came, came hit the market, autonomous drones specifically hit the market. It was, they started to get so cheap that everybody was just like, boom, hundred percent of the fleet. Let's go, let's go do an inspection. And there's a lot of people that still do that today. And you're there, you know, you're, there's nothing wrong with that, but you're, you're catching, you know, possibly propagating issues and you're getting an update every year on every turbine and this. So those, those are good things. But I think if you look back now and say, okay, autonomous drone inspections have been around for five, six, seven years. And if you were to look at the the inspection results over five, six, seven years, I think in a, in a, in a portfolio, you're going to see a lot of turbines that you may have paid 350, 400 bucks, 500 bucks inspection and nothing really happened. Nothing changed, right? So one of the things Thread is doing is while they're enabling the people on the ground to do it. So instead of XYZ wind calling abc drone company to come out and do their their annual inspection campaign paying for mobilization paying for weather downtime all these different you know shutting wind turbines down when they they may be in peak wind that day like they may be creating a lot of kilowatt hours and being very profitable but since the guy's on site and we got to pay for him we got to shut these things down and and let them inspect uh where if you had a drone on site some people trained to, to use it. I mean, it's autonomous technology. So you basically have to have a part 107 and be able to land the thing. If something goes wrong, uh, it's, it doesn't take a whole lot of, um, piloting skills to do that. Um, <laughs> no offense to anybody flying autonomous drones. Um, but, uh, it enables the, basically the inspection, uh, arm of any asset owner, ISP, whatever, to be more uh, efficient and effective, right? So they can be more cost effective and hey, if there's low wind today or we're not doing anything, let's go up and do some inspections. Or if we had lightning roll through a wind farm yesterday, let's do some inspections. I know we, we, we're always telling that, saying that in wind power lab, like, you know, regularly inspect. If you had lightning come through, check the turbines or check this side of the wind farm or whatnot, if you know where their lightning strikes were. We, but if you're waiting a year now to inspect and you know that you had you, you don't know if you had lightning damage or not you might possibly have some large issues looming and that's when we see a lot of blade failures right because sometimes you have inspections where damage just grows and grows and grows and grows and if you would have stopped it on day 10 or day one or day two instead of day 180 you would have saved money in the cost to fix it and or could have saved a catastrophic failure so um that's one of the things I know Thread is doing is is enabling the the people on the ground to be able to do their own inspections. I think that's smart. Um, and another thing is, um, you know, they're they're a big plat they're a big data platform. So they're they're trying to take in as much data as they can and uh, help people be proactive instead of reactive. Right. Their data platform is called Unity with two eyes. But that seems to be a big driver for a lot of owner operators is the is the data platform that if that interface is not workable, they just don't like to use it. 
But I, I think in, in Thread's case, they're really working on making that, that interface helpful to the owner operator, right? Because if they're gonna be doing their own inspections, kind of what they're doing, then they need to be able to quickly sort out what's what and focus attention where they need to. And I, I think that's where Thread is going. It's, it's a unique business approach, right? It sort of takes out the middleman out of the inspection process and probably needs to, right? There's a lot of wind farms that need that service and still will. But I think some of the wind farms and the operators have moved on, that they figured out how to do that and just need a tool, which is what Thread is providing. Yeah, they want to make the the process more efficient, right? So when you talk about integrations, like if you if you're a soft if you're an autonomous drone company and that's what you do, you may not have the expertise on staff to have an SAP integration or you know have a proper API handles into someone's system. These larger operators, they don't want to have. I know I don't. I I hate when I have to log into Netflix and YouTube TV and Hulu and have three different logins. I would hate to you know be an be an asset operator or O and M uh, person responsible and have this login for this platform and this login for this platform. And so I Thread's got some some smart software guys. It's a lot of the uh, the larger we'll say like software slash data acquisition companies do um, to be able to integrate into some of these players. So the I think that there's you're we're starting to see a more advanced. Uh, version of what was a drone company, right? You said you have the 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 Zite, the Zite view guys that have recently got a bunch of cash and they're evolving. And they've got a big back office office staff that is software heavy as well, right? They're very smart at what they do. Skyspecs, eighty million dollars, right? I know Thread. They came out of North Dakota as a drone company, right? And they got a bunch of non dilutive funding, and now they're growing and growing and growing. So you're starting to see like drone company inspection company two point uh, pop up uh, as opposed to, Hey, we can offer an autonomous drone inspections. That's great. Now everybody can do that. What else do you got? Rosemary, isn't that the dream though? If, if you're a blade designer and having to maintain blades, don't you want just to be able to have access to images that are more recent than six months ago? I'm not sure if it's a dream for the manufacturers. It's maybe it's a, a nightmare for them because you can <laughs> pick up, pick up a lot more stuff, but it's certainly something that, you know, the kind of work that I do with, um, you know, working with serial defects in, in wind farms um, and root cause analysis and stuff. When you're in that phase where you're trying to figure out, you know, how worried do we need to be about this problem? You know, we've got a few failures, usually the first one or two you found out about accidentally because, you know, you just happened to be doing something else to that blade and, and notice something. And then, um, you know, root cause analysis, the, the affected population tends to grow and grow and grow for a while. And you never know how how quickly something is going to progress. That's one of the problems with composite materials. You know, you can statistically say how um, fast, you know, the damage is going to be apparent in a population. You can do testing and say, you know, we expect uh, this defect has a fatigue, uh, a blade with this defect has a fatigue lifetime of, you know, one year instead of 30 or two years instead of 30. But that, yeah, that's statistical. That doesn't tell you any individual blade and you can never have very much confidence. And the problem is that, you know, once the defect starts, um, like the way that the crack propagates it, it it's not like it's going to, even if you know, you know, on average, it's going to make, uh, you know, 20 millimeters over a year, this crack. 
it's not happening, you know, one millimeter every month. It's like nothing, 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 10 millimeters. And then nothing, 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 your blade's broken. Um, that's, that's kind of how it works. And so when I'm getting involved in these cases, I'm like, you know, the manufacturer is always like, oh, you know, we're sure that this is not going to happen um, quickly. It's, uh, you know, it's all fine. We'll continue inspecting the blades once a year. And I'm always wanting more information. Um, and to be a little bit more more cautious for the way that they're running the the wind farm and it is going to be so nice when we have more options available to be inspecting much more frequently um yeah and in the case of lightning as well as what joel was saying about you know catching a damage early before it you know breaks before it's a catastrophe it's not just about preventing the damage it's also about assigning blame um so you know if you catch a damaged blade the day after a lightning strike um and you know you're you're pretty sure that the lightning strike was within the the parameters that it's certified for then it's quite easy to be like, okay, the lightning um, system didn't behave as expected. Whereas if it happens a year later, you're not sure what lightning strike did it. Um, and also, you know, a little bit of damage that could have been repaired in, you know, a couple of hours with a couple of rope techs. Um, that's different to then, oh, we just let it, we just let it run and now the blade's broken. I mean, that's, you know, you're not going to get the manufacturer to pay for that because you couldn't be bothered to inspect it. So, um, I think there's so many benefits to being able to inspect much more frequently. Um, and, you know, I say this nearly every time we talk about easier maintenance, but it's going to be especially critical offshore. You know, you, you just, we, we can't keep on doing maintenance um, and managing defects the same way offshore as we do now onshore. It's just, it's not, it is not going to work um, once we have, you know, so many offshore wind farms. So we need solutions like this. Joel and I were just talking before the podcast about a wind turbine that got damaged by lightning a couple of days ago. And I went back to look at all the lightning strikes that had occurred in that general area. And this is sort of the middle of Kansas. There, over one evening, there had to be a thousand lightning strikes. Or more, or more. It was crazy. It was insane. Right. And so you just know when those kind of storms pass over your farm, you probably have lightning strike damage, or there's a pretty good chance you've taken a number of lightning strikes. Damage is the question mark. You need to be checking that. When those storms hit, the next day, you better be out there doing some inspections because, like, you're, you're right, Rosemary, if you don't catch it at the right time, it could be catastrophic. And sometimes those cracks propagate faster than you think. It's the perfect case for a thread, right? It should be able to go out there the next day, fly the drone, check out your turbines, go, yes, we're good or no. Turbines 2, 8, and 12 need to be shut down <laughs> until we can get a closer look. we got to call uh, you know, Wind Power Lab to come in and do an internal inspection. There you go. There's your, there's your case, right? You know, the, the other thing not to be missed here is that when you go to Blades USA, when you talk to anybody that is a, in the blade world, they're talking like, man, if we, we if we get more data, if we get more data, if we could look at this, we could look at this. This has the capability. These, these advanced software platforms have the capability and, and that quick ability to go and inspect and collect this data has the ability to give blade engineers uh, and blade O&M specialists, uh, you know, this data to be able to look at so uh, use case look at offshore wind like like you were talking rosie and uh leading edge erosion if you're looking at leading edge erosion and you look at one year two year and you, see, you can see the general propagation of it now there's 
quantitative studies out there to to get into forecasting this but qualitatively you could just look at it and say like okay basically this leading edge erosion is is last is you know is advanced to a stage at two years where we need to do something about it and if we do the same thing again then we're going to be back here again in two years spending a million dollars with an sov doing an lap campaign so now that we have all this data and we can see how long this is actually going to last we figured out what our you know, OPEX budget looks like we need to change something or we can continue to do the same thing, whatever. But you're getting more data this way to be able to make those decisions properly. Ping Monitor is a continuous blade monitoring system which allows wind farm operators to stay ahead of maintenance. Wind techs can often hear damaged blades from the ground, but they can't continuously monitor all the turbines. They also can't calculate how bad the damage is or how fast it's propagating based on sound. But Ping can. Ping's acoustic system is being used on over 600 turbines worldwide. It allows operators to discover damage before it gets expensive and prioritize maintenance needs across their fleet. And it pays for itself the first time it identifies serious damage or saves you from doing an unnecessary visual inspection. Stop flying blind out there. Get Ping's ears on your turbines. Learn more at pingmonitor.co. All right, so there's records being set all the time across the world in offshore wind industry, and Scotland is a place where a lot of those records happen. Well, the Scottish energy company SSE has set a new record by installing the world's deepest offshore wind turbine foundation. Uh, the 2,000-ton foundation was installed at a depth of over 58 meters, and as part of a three billion billion pound sea green offshore wind farm which is being developed in partnership with uh, french oil company super major overall uh, the wind farm will be fully operational this summer and is capable of powering an equivalent of 1.6 million homes holy moly that's a lot of homes guys sse's chief executive officer alistair phillip Davies said that the installation marked a significant step in, towards completing the project and demonstrating how the company is pushing the boundaries of technology to drive change. Uh, SSE uh, is, is planning to invest 12.5 billion pounds in by 2026 in various renewable energy projects. Wow. <laughs> 58 meters is a long way, Joel. That's a little, pretty deep. 58 meters is the depth of the water, right? That's the depth of the water. So think about this now. That 58 meters is the depth of the water. You're going to be at least... 10 to 20 meters below the mud line. And then you're going to be another probably, I don't know, seven to 12 meters above the water. So you're thinking 60, you're 80, 80 meters high. And, and I believe this is, if this is a, if this is a foundation, this isn't a monopile. So this is a jacket. So this thing is huge, like absolutely massive. I think it, you're, you're, you're step, you're, you're setting a football field on end and building it out of steel. You know, and then think about the and the width of the foundation. Like it's just just massive. Like to stand next to something like this would be it would just blow your mind. Can I just step in and be a little bit pedantic about this? It's the it's the the deepest fixed bottom offshore wind turbine, right? A uh, floating, yeah, yeah. So we're talking we're talking fixed fixed bottom records being broken. Um, yeah, which I guess is relevant to floating as well, because obviously the deeper that you can install a fixed bottom turbine, the less of a case there is for floating, for now at least. I know a lot of people think that um, floating is eventually going to end up cheaper than than fixed bottom um, in a lot of cases, but you know we're a long way away from that now at least. Well, Entreon uh, disagrees on floating 
because Intron Wind is working with DNV on a monopal concept that is in for water depths up to 100 meters. So they just went, uh, Intron Wind just went through a, a process with DNV um, as a feasibility study. And DNV uh, blessed it, said, yeah, this is totally feasible and can proceed on to further development and, and qualification. So uh, there, there's a lot of question marks about floating winds and trying to determine how deep you can actually make a monopile. And it looks like this, this intron wind application is basically a really tall monopile with some cables anchored to the sea bottom, much like a circus tent is put up, right? Got the main pole and a couple of, of cables coming off it. So it's not true monopile, Joel. It's a quasi-monopile, I, w- I would call it. But I think it's, isn't it about just keeping it cheaper and just using the same ships and things you already have? So the complexity is is less. I, I think that's where they're going here. I don't, I don't see the advantage. I don't see the advantage of it. This is where I'm thinking, and maybe Rosemary along the same lines as this floating wind, is you're going to put you have to put anchors and or subsea micropiles in for the basically what would be guy wires, right? So why not just put a floating platform out there? You got to do that anyways for the floating platform. Or does it make the installation that much cheaper and easier with the 100-meter monopile? I guess that it's also about technology readiness because obviously, you know, a floating, floating platform is going to move around a bit and it makes a big difference to how much power you can generate. If you've got, you know, like a, your rotor is slightly off axis and that's going to reduce your power and cause some funky, funky loads that it wasn't designed for. So, you know, we don't quite yet probably know Um how well that the floating wind can perform um or you know with the current technologies at least but i would i would think like okay so alan you and i the other day had a, a conversation with the gentleman about a tension leg platform so a tension leg platform <laughs> a tension leg platform would in 100 meters of water would basically eliminate much of the pitch roll heave of the of the floater um but again, like you said, Rosemary, now I'm just I'm kind of combating myself. But the idea of using a monopile would be two or three piece monopile buried in the mud. It'd probably be easier. It's probably a quicker TRL level nine product uh, than uh, anything floating. Yeah, but I do think I mean, it sounds out there that floating wind would eventually become cheaper than than fixed bottom. But there are a lot of of advantages to it once it matures a bit more i mean the foundations are, are easier right the um you know the, the it, it kinds of loads that it has to withstand are, are a bit easier to deal with in the the foundations um and then also it should use less steel i would have thought less materials need to be in, in the you know in the seafloor um and in the tower so that would be an advantage in the long run too. And then one other one that people talk about is, uh, you know, if you've got like a major fault and you need to, you know, take, uh, I don't know, big components off, you know, say you've got to get um, blades down and replace bearings, replace generators or bits of the tower, you can tow a floating um, wind turbine back to the port and do that work there, whereas it's going to be, so expensive if you've got you, you know a, 
when you've got turbines in 100 meter deep water, they're usually quite far out. If you've got to get crews out there every single day and equipment sitting out there, I don't know, build a floating hotel for them, it's going to be very expensive for major faults. So I can see, I probably am in the camp that believes that eventually floating will be cheaper than um, fixed bottom, but I guess timing, it'll be, in my opinion, at least 10 years, maybe it's going to be 20 years before we see that. So um, yeah, I don't know. What do you think about that, Joel? Yeah, I think you're. I think you're correct, Rosemary. I think that once we see some more development and we start to see commercial scale, larger commercial scale deployments of offshore floating wind, the cost will become will come down. Um, I I fully believe that. And what I'm thinking about now is, and we kind of know some of the technical limitations or technical hurdles that offshore floating wind is fighting against because we we're talking with people in the industry regularly. This is kind of a new, I mean, it's not a crazy concept, right? But it's a newer concept. And I'm wondering what kind of technical hurdles they had to jump or, or uh, please the DNV people as they sort of, you know, certified the feed study um, to get to the point where they could say it's good to go. And the, the, the big one I'm thinking of is VIV, right? Vortex-induced vibration. I wanted to, to run this by you. Have you ever heard of Ridgeway rock bags? They're based in Northern Ireland. That business is amazing. They put they make bags of rocks and they sell it and they're known like worldwide for these bags of rocks which are used to prevent scour and to kind of hold down transmission cables and a bunch of other things. That do, do you, can you describe what that business is or what it's all about? Yeah, so uh rock, Ridgeway Rock Bags is if you've ever worked offshore there's a thing called a mattress. Um, and a, a mattress goes on instead of something laying on it. Sometimes it goes on top of something. So with the current subsea, everything's moving all the time. Um, if you've ever looked at any kind of imagery of the, the seafloor, it looks just like the waves on the beach look, or in the desert dunes. Looks the same thing in this undersea. Uh, but the difference is, is most of that is like silty and soft and moves very easily. When you you can drop. A tool, this, this happens with ROVs and subsea operations all the time. You can drop a tool. If you drop a tool from an ROV, usually it's gone because it just goes into the silt. Like you're not going to get it back. Um, so when you have uh, like say an offshore wind and farm installation, those knot, those those two to three knot currents coming around the monopiles that are into the bottom are going to create scour, right? It's just like when a creek flows by and there's a rock and there's that pool of water behind it that kind of digs out underneath the rock, the same thing happens as water passes by the turbine top or the monopile. So you'd put these, you'd usually do rock dumps. And a lot of times it's just big ship <laughs> and they're just taking a, a crane dump, dumping rocks, right? Um, if you miss on your rock dumps or you put them in the wrong place, you can very easily damage things. Um, but uh, these rock bags make it a lot more controllable and, and they basically build them. You can build them quayside or you can build them on, out, on the, out on the vessel as well. But it makes it more controllable to drop, drop larger sums of rocks that stay together. So think of think of like... If you had a garden hose running across uh, your yard, and when you crank on the water, that garden hose moves and flexes a little bit, think of that. Think of that being the power cable or the oil export line or anything, but laying on the seafloor. So you have that force moving it, but you also have water flowing over the top of it, left and right and back and forth. So you want to put some rocks or mattresses along along it to keep it pinned down to the to the bottom of the sea basically and that's what these rock dump bags are for so you go out there and place them on top of the pipeline or the export cable or what 
whatnot to keep them from moving. Because if they move, they start to flex. It's just like bending a uh, paperclip. Eventually they break. I think that's an amazing business. And the more I see them on LinkedIn, the more I just think, that's genius. There's a lot of technology behind it. I was watching a YouTube video from them uh, where the bags themselves are made out of recycled plastic. Uh, for a variety of reasons. I thought they were just made out of like chain link fence, like you kind of see here in the States along the interstate highways, but it's no, it's a, it's a flexible plastic, recycled plastic bag that has to last a really long time on the ocean bottom. It's, it's kind of amazing, right? You just, you just don't think about all the associated businesses that are tied up in offshore wind. That's one of them. Yeah, absolutely. Our wind farm of the week is Western Spirit Wind. In New Mexico, it is actually four separate energy projects, um, Red Cloud, Duran Mesa, Klein's Corners, and Tecolote. Uh, there is a little over a gigawatt of installed capacity. Uh, Western Spirit Wind represents uh, the most wind power ever constructed in a single phase in the United States. Uh, it started in, it opened in 2021. It has about 35 employees on site. And Rosemary, they use GE wind turbines. There are 377 GE wind turbines, uh, varying in size from 2.3 to 2.8 megawatts. And Western Spirit is a feeder uh, for California. That energy is sent to kind of the Los Angeles area to the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power. So you got to cross a couple of states to get yourself from New Mexico all the way to California. But local. It's a little crazy, right? But it's great for the local community in, in New Mexico. So about $3 million a year is paid in property taxes in the, in the three counties that these wind farms are in. And the transmission line also contributes another about a million dollars a year in taxes. So there's $4 million bucks hitting the local community from, these, from that wind farm. So that's pretty cool. So Western Spirit Wind Project out in New Mexico, you are our wind farm of the week. That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Thanks for listening. Please give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform and subscribe in the show notes below to Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter. And check out Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie. And we'll see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast.